Hello, everyone, and welcome to Writers Drinking Coffee. This is a podcast of a bunch of writers sitting around drinking tasty beverages and talking about writing, publishing, and the whole creative process. We do not censor ourselves, so consider us PG-13. Your writers today are Chaz and Karen Brinchley, John Schmidt, and me, Jeannie Warner. This is episode 118, Beans, the Best of Chaz Brinchley. I am excited to do this because Chaz, one of our own, has new stuff coming out and it's very exciting. I'm, I'm excited to do this, but I have to confess I was the one who came up with beans because he makes such fantastic beans. But uh, tell us about your book, Chaz. Wait, which uh, one? Uh, that's what I was going to say. Which book would you like to hear about first? Actually, no, let's, let, let's do everything in all the wrong order because then we will... Bite. Because then it doesn't okay. matter what order things are exactly. if everything is in the wrong order. Oh, God, I I can't believe you cued that up so perfectly. So everything (laughs) in all the wrong order, besides being the description of how we're going to discuss things, is... It is a thing I have yearned for for 30 years, probably. Um, When I was possibly 40, um, when I was actually... 45. Um, When I was was a teenager and reading science fiction devouringly... um, you know, I practically read nothing else apart from school books. There was this thing, this commonplace thing, that science fiction writers who published a lot of short stories, um, they would have collections of their short stories published every few years. And then as they moved on towards the end of their careers, there would be a best-of collection. And I pined and I yearned for a future in which I would have a best-of collection. Um, and, and now I do. It's called Everything in All the Wrong Order, The Best of Chaz Brenchley, and, and it's a beautiful, beautiful book. Um, it's from Subterranean Press, who make beautiful, beautiful books. Um, was this and, uh, was this Gerilyn Lance behind you? Um, Gerilyn was um, certainly involved in the p- production, yeah. The initiative came from um, Bill Schaefer, who runs and owns the press, um, and he's been a friend of mine for decades um, that we've rarely met. <laughs> we, 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 we got to know each other through writing actual letters um, on actual paper because it was pre-email. And, and then and he used to phone, used to phone me on a Sunday morning, my time in the UK. And, and Sophie, Sophie Cat would lie across my shoulders and purr into the telephone all the way to America. Yeah, so we've been friends forever. And and he said, actually, Chaz, I was thinking, it's about time you had a best of collection. And now we do. I'm just so thrilled. Wait, you also write so much horror and murder and death. Was this a subtle way of saying I'm going to kill you? No. I mean, you just you just expressed that the best of is, you know, the last thing they do before you. Oh, yeah, I mean, that's, that's absolutely not true. Um, the... If you look, if you look back at the careers of the great science fiction, the great long-lived science fiction writers, you will see there's a, a best-of collection that crops up maybe halfway through their career or two-thirds of the way, and then a while later there'll be a very best-of, <laughs> you know, so on and so forth. Um, because of course people want to see copies of see the the great stories, the famous stories still going the rounds. Um, but of course, yeah, by the time somebody has published their best of, it's perfect. I, mean, I, I would have three or four copies of 
a particular story in various collections and anthologies. And so you're always wanting to include new ones as well. I mean, this is this is called My Best Of, and it has three stories that have never been published before. So it's a bit arrogant, but... Well, uh, that makes all the wrong order then, unless they're at the very end, or... <laughs> <laughs> no, they're not. Um, actually, I mean, I, I, I'm determined to insist that... The stories are absolutely in the exact right order. The title comes from a short story I wrote, ironically enough, called Everything in All the Wrong Order, um, which Bill, the publisher, said, you know, I'd really like to call this collection Everything in All the Wrong Order, but I can't remember if this, that story is good enough to be in this collection. Um, so I went back and reread it, and it didn't quite make the cut. But I said, Bill... I don't want to put this story in the collection, but but can we use the title anyway? And he said, yes, of course we can. So we did. <laughs> well, I'd like to point out that um, he one of his collections, his previous collection, yeah. Bitter Waters, uh, he won the Lambda Award for. So, you know, he's, he's, you know, collections of Chaz's are very, very good. Yeah, but that was only that good because you edited it. Well, I helped you with I helped you with this one, too. That's true. <laughs> so that's a great sign that you uh, helped him with this one, too. And I have a question. So the the Bitter Waters had a couple themic elements in it from my point of view, one being water and one being some of the characteristics of some of the characters. Mm -hmm. Is there any themic elements through all the wrong order or is it just what you decided was the best across all of your multiple many ways of writing? Yeah, um, it's not what I think of as a collection of just the absolute best. Uh, partly because, as I say, there are three new stories in it, and those have yet to face the judgment of the world. But also, Bill did say that he didn't want too, mu too much crossover with Bitter Waters, which you know, is still out there, it's still selling. And I'd put a lot of my favourite stories into Bitter Waters. So some of those had to step back for a while. But if there, I mean, if there are themes in every because everything is you know it is taken from right across my career the oldest story in there i wrote in the early 1980s when i was 22 or 23 probably and so if, if there are themes if themes emerge from a reading of these stories in this order they will be the themes of my life um, there's a lot of gay characters in there inevitably and there's a lot of water i do not know why i have an obsession with water, given that I grew up about as far from the sea as you can get in the UK. Which isn't but very far. It's not very far, but we didn't have a car, so coasts mm. were, were pretty much inaccessible. But I was in Oxford, and Oxford is a city of rivers and canals. Um, so I did grow up on the water quite often. Never in the water, because I can't swim. <laughs> but themes, fey boys and sensible girls, quite a lot of my fiction... Yes, revolves around that. Um, wow, that kind of yeah. describes my entire twenties. Right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Mine too. Well, you also <laughs> there's also like a few <laughs> favorites from the uh, Bitter Waters, like Keep the Aspidocolone Floating, and you know a couple of the others. Yeah. So there's there's a little bit of overlap, but it, they're again the thematic the uh, thematic kinds of things. One of the things I find really interesting about Chaz's work. I, I think I think when you were at in Wyoming for Oh oh for Launchpad. Yes. For, for Launchpad. Um, which that's that's um Astronomy for Science Fiction Writers 101. It's a one-week residential course and 
they slam it into you constantly. It's, it's, I've rarely felt my brain being so stretched. It was awesome. But one of, one of the one of your co-members said something to you like, you know, what do you write books about puppies and, and flowers? <laughs> and you're like, uh, uh, no, uh, people, you know, they're there. I would describe your stories that as gripping and powerful and painful, but also in some ways um, enlightening. And I'm thinking of, of, of things like some some of your Mars stories that are both, they are both sad and uplifting. Mm-hmm. I mean, for example, don't you have a Mars story on Tor.com uh, this week? <laughs> oh, yes, Callan, yes, I do. There's a segue. Yeah, so I've been writing stories about Mars um, for a long time now. Um, this, is, this is Mars. Um, Mars as a province of the British Empire. Uh, it's a, I've probably talked about this before on this show. But Not it, enough. Possibly not. But anyway, yeah, so there is there is an ongoing Patreon where I'm writing girls, English girls' boarding school stories set on Mars. Um, and for adults though, these are not. Yeah, yeah they're, they're not they're not I'm not writing for children. Um, I'm writing for those basically those adults who remember those 1930s boarding school stories with great affection, like me. <laughs> um, it's possible I'm even writing for me. Um and, and, and there is a novel that I have failed to complete about three times now, um, which is about Rudyard Kipling on Mars, and I will get back to it. Um, and there are a couple of novellas around that I'm still fiddle, fiddling with. And, and, and at the moment, yeah, there are a few short stories, one of which deals with Oscar Wilde on Mars, and that's really the most serious writing about this culture that I've... And what was the title of that one? Uh, the title of the, the Oscar Wilde one yeah. um, um, was the Astrakhan, the Hamburg, Hamburg and the Red Red Coal. And yeah. wasn't that in somebody's destroyed? Queers destroyed science fiction. Queers destroyed science fiction. Yes, it was. Really, um, I didn't know that. Yes, it was. That's where it's first. Oh, um, edited by Sean and Maguire. Yeah. So I, when I'm when I'm feeling serious. I write a short story about Mars. Um, and the tour.com story is up now. It's called The Station of the Twelfth. It's it's Chaz being serious and melancholic. A lot of my stories are melancholic, I find. I wonder why, dear. I can't imagine. It's your humors. Yes. <laughs> is, is it? Mm-hmm. No, is I it? think that's really it. <laughs> I really do. Well, does he eat too many beans? I I found it a relief to melancholy in these uncertain times that that those that we do not forget those. But I don't want to say anything more. So sure. I yeah. can't disagree with you that it's melancholic. Mm. But I found it in its way a relief to melancholy. So I have to ask: Do you mm. have any Martian cookbooks available? <laughs> oh, segues! We're doing it so well. Transitions, we call them in in, in writing. Yeah. Um. So there is the thing is um. I do cook. I cook quite a lot. Excellently yeah, well. Wonderful. I um, cook quite well. I um, gained so much weight. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. It's my fault. And by definition, a girls' boarding school has to have a famous cook. Um, so the Crater School has Mrs. Bailey. And for a few years now, I've been posting Mrs. Bailey's recipes uh, one by one on Medium. 
and you can find them there should you want to go and look. And it's, it's, it's under Mrs. Bailey's Martian Kitchen, I think. A very old friend of mine and a very nice person, um, <laughs> Cheryl Morgan, runs a small press in the UK. Um, and Wizard's Tower Press? Wizard's Tower Press, as, as, as it happens, yes. And she wanted to publish the greatest school books as I finished them. So I said, yeah, sure, fine, woohoo. And the first one is out now, Three Twins of the Crater School. You can buy it um, in ebook, hardback, or paperback. Um, and um, I, I, I may possibly have mentioned, while, while my agent and Shoal and I were discussing this lot, I may possibly have mentioned that there was an emergent cookbook happening on Medium. Um, and she said, I'll take that too. So... At some point, I think we might have been hoping, hoping for this Christmas, but it's probably going to be next Christmas now. Mrs. Bailey's Martian Kitchen will emanate as a, as a, as a, as a publication. If alone, if it has the sesame buns, it's going to be worth it. Just oh, it's got the sesame buns. Of course, oh, it's got oh, the sesame buns. They've got lovely... People have been known to kill each other for the last sesame bun. <laughs> oh, that's only you, you serial killer writer. The I rest of us... projecting... Yeah. The rest of us just hide them from you because you have knives. <laughs> well, the thing is, unlike the rest of you, I get the first one that's hot out of the oven. So I don't have to fight for the last one. I have the first and best. <sighs> I had I, I just went and looked at it. I had no idea you had so many different possibilities. This is horrible. Hmm. <laughs> Isn't that horrible? It's wonderful. Also... Also, Wizard Towers Press, aren't they going to be doing... Utremer. Utremer, that's right. Your, your Utremer books? Yes, they are. Well, well, back, let us what back is... up because people may have never read your Utremer books. Yes. So. Okay, so when I was 12, I met Tolkien, and I spent the next five years writing really bad Tolkien-esque fantasy. And when I was 17, I realized just how bad it was and declared that I was going to write no more fantasy until I had a completely different idea that was nothing to do with Tolkien, whatever. Time passed. Um, I started writing. I started publishing. Um, I published crime books. I published horror books. I did not publish fantasy because I was clinging to that teenage oath. And then in the mid-ish 90s, got a brochure through my door in the mail because I belonged to the Folio Society which is basically a book club in the UK that prints beautiful illustrated editions of generally well-known books. And, I mean, they do fiction, they do non-fiction. Um, and this brochure was an advertisement for their forthcoming publication of Stephen Runciman's History of the Crusades in three volumes. And, I mean, I read the book years ago and had not thought anything beyond yeah that's really interesting history um and then i was just sitting there looking at this brochure thinking oh how can i conceivably justify buying a really beautiful edition when i have the paperbacks on my shelf over there it it was like it was like a bolt from the blue it was the postman delivering my big fantasy idea um, because i mean to be sure people had written crusader analog fantasies prior to this but i just had not read them um this seemed a wholly new thing to me so i spent a couple of years researching in a way i have never done since uh, and have never done before that because um obviously this was a, this was a big thing and then i tentatively wrote a 
proposal and some sample chapters and very tentatively approached my then agent because she had told me when I signed on with her 15 years earlier that she didn't do fantasy. So I said, look, I know you don't do fantasy, but um, um, I want to write this fantasy. Um, will you handle it for me or should I go and find another agent? And she said, of course, I'll handle it for you. How dare you? <laughs> <laughs> All your writing comes through me. Um, and, and she sent off the proposal um, to various publishers, but one of them came back within a week saying, I want this. Uh, so we waited a while, but nobody else dived in so we didn't get an auction um and we sold the book to john gerald at uh what was what was he random house uk i think at the time yeah he's now my agent but that's a whole different other story yeah so so i wrote three big fat volumes i i i had planned four um but one way or another i think because fantasies traditionally come in threes only three of them were contracted for and when I delivered the second, my, John, John had left the company. He was no longer involved in the project at all. And my new editor said, Chaz, how many books are there going to be? And I said, four. And he said, oh, we only have contracts for three. And I said, yeah, I know. But John always said, that. he said, oh, um, actually, we'd kind of like you to wrap it up in three if you can. Um, so the third volume <laughs> is very, very long indeed, or was. And 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 I still feel that the series is a bit cropped off. Um, but anyway, there it was, and it went out into the world, and uh, got some nice reviews, and nobody bought it. Uh, <laughs> it's still in my life. I have lovely reviews, but so it dropped out of print eventually, as they do, and and we finally, finally, after years and years of asking. We now have the rights back. And, and my lovely friend, Cheryl Morgan, who was one of the first people to review these books when they came out. And, and she reviewed them fulsomely. She loved them. And, and she said, let me, let me, I want. So, so we will be publishing alternately um, Outremer books and Crater School books through the next couple of years, at least. Excellent. So we're not going to run out anytime soon. No, and the, 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 the thing is, um, the three fat volumes in the British edition, um, we sold American rights a few years later. And they said, actually, you know, we have this sneaky plan um, where we want to publish these books monthly, but we want you to cut each of them in half. So we have six slender volumes that we can bring out rat -a tat 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 consecutively. Um, and I said, okie doke, have you ever done this before? And they said, we tried it once. Hmm. And I said, did it work? And they said, no, but we want to try it again. So I went, I went through them and basically the first two is pretty much the British text, just with a little adjustment in order to make a convenient place to cut the books in two and have them make sense. The third one, I, I took advantage of the opportunity and cut it significantly, as well as cutting it in half. So the, the American edition is now, the six-book version is my favourite edition. It's the authored preferred, preferred text, except that obviously, because Shoal is doing new editions, I'll be going through them again and no doubt fiddling again, because I can't not. But yeah, it will be the American six volume style so we yeah we we will have six slim volumes 
We may need you to stop and write a blog for us on our site, all on the topic of rights and moving and publishing and changing just for the story as I, I've known people that have had to fight so hard to get the rights to their work back here and yeah. there. And yeah. when, when for fun, when or not, how do you get people to let it go? It's an interesting puzzle in sure. the industry. Yeah. And I mean, the thing is, traditional contracts were for the length of copyright, which meant, you know, sort of um, originally years. 50 years yeah. after the author's death. Thanks, and, and more recently, 70 years after the author's death. And what with the, the radical changes that have overcome publishing in the last 20 years, an awful lot of writers are sitting there looking at an awful lot of their backlist books, which have fallen out of print and are completely not available. And, you know, they can make them available. They can put them, they can self-publish them, or they can find a small publisher, as I have, um, who will put them out again. And all you have to do is get those rights back from the mainstream publisher who is not using them, who is gaining nothing by simply possessing these um, these copyright. Well, they, they don't possess the copyright, but they possess the right to publish. To publish and they, and, and and to solely solely to publish for the rest of my life and, and beyond. Um, and they are they are yielding on this, but it, with a lot of public with a lot, with with them big mainstream publishers, it's a very slow and difficult process because you have to argue for a change in the contract. And 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 the other thing is that the, they say, but look, we have got, we have kept it in print. We have an ebook edition, um, and ebooks by definition never go out of print. So yeah, it's a problem which the industry is addressing slowly, but having to backpedal through. Yeah, if if you if you started your career in the seventies as I did, that's an awful lot of moving back and re trying to reclaim rights that were signed away then. That is definitely tricky. I mean, how how would we turn this around? Because I have two questions. You know, the the, the hard one and the fun one of the if they then wanted to say make a TV series or a movie out of mm -hmm. it, you know, they have to go buy it from the publisher, I presume. Um, probably not. The most. Most sensible agents, at any rate, will keep movie and TV rights off a publishing contract right. um, very firmly and explicitly. And But this, this is one of the reasons, obviously, why publishers do want to just hang on to rights they're not currently utilising. Because, yeah, I mean, people do come along you know, a decade later and say, I want to make a TV series you know, because Game of Thrones has happened. Now suddenly... Grim dark fantasies are very much shadow and bone, even the YA versions. Right. Yeah. Um, and and so you know, I mean, someone could still uh, look at. I mean, we did we did have a film person look at the Ultramare books and say, "God, I'd really love to do those, but I'd never get it through the studio." And now they might. Um, so. Yay. Yeah. Um, yeah, but but that's I mean that's that's why they hold on to the rights because yeah I mean if if a if a film or TV producer had come to me ten years or five years ago last year even and said I want to do Ultramare then those books suddenly have a value again and and the publishers could bring out a tie-in edition when the film broke and and they would make lots of money in. Which I wouldn't have resented, honestly, because. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I, I, I prefer 
get, you know, I, I've spent a lifetime, a professional lifetime, waiting for those big TV and TV deals. <laughs> um, and, and, and none of them have happened. So, so I'd rather just get the books back out there. I really would. Yeah, for a new generation, as it were, because they really are, you know, the kids are all right, they're reading new things. Yep. Yeah. In terms of short bits and tour, Karen, didn't you get a poem published recently, too? No, I sold a poem. It has not come out yet. But I sold it to uh, Fantasy, um, Fantasy Magazine, which is online. I I sold a poem. It's a reply to a poem by uh, a very good writer that was um, that had been made into a cartoon poster that hung in the it hung in my bathroom, and so um, I used to you know see it uh, daily, and I thought oh that's a good poem, and then I, I read it for a while, and then I realized huh, I'm actually kind of pissed at that when you actually think about it, and so this is my reply, but I don't want to give away the name of the writer or the name of the poem until my poem comes out. Because um, that's what Twitter's for. (laughs) It is. I actually had a question on Fantasy Magazine because is it still called Fantasy Magazine or is it one of the ones that got merged into Lightspeed or any of the others? No, it it is. uh, It it is um, Fantasy Magazine. It's standalone. It has its own editor. And uh, relaunch with Arlie and Christine. Yes. Yes. Uh Arlie does the science fiction one and Christine does fantasy. And there's a poetry editor too, I think, which is separate. I'm not. I'm not entirely sure on all of this because names are hard. But um, but yeah, they're they're both both of them are out separate ma- magazines. Changing from names are hard. Uh, what? When can we expect your poem? Dates are. I don't hard know. Too. I don't know. They haven't given me a date for that. They uh, they said soon. Excellent. So you, you do have a date for your forthcoming short story, though, don't you? Oh yes, yes, I do have. Um, I have a short story coming out in Parsec Magazine, which is a brand new British magazine, or I should say, magazine from the British publisher um, of new, who also does New Con Press. The, the editor, um, Ian, Ian Waits, our old friend, is yes. editing Parsec. It's being published by PS Publishing which is basically my old friend, Pete. Oh, okay. Yes. So, um, so anyway, so I, I saw that this was, um, that that this was happening. Long story (laughs) that I won't go into, but I saw that there was this new magazine and I had finished this story that I had sent to, um, to an anthology and I knew it wasn't right for the anthology, but they sent it back. So I sent it to him and he's an old friend of mine. And, um, and he said, you write. And I said, yeah, yes, I do. And he said, Oh, I, I really liked it. I'm going to save it, you know, in, I'm going to save it in my second, you know, the second look pile. And by the time I woke up the next day, I had a, I would like to buy this and it will be in the second edition of the magazine Parsec, P-A-R-S-E-C, of course. And it's um, online only. So it's an online only magazine. It's just like an ebook, but it's a magazine and it's in the November, December of this year issue. So it will drop in, in, in November. And it's called The Bayesian Theory of Wishes. And it's a Black Lives Matter story. And um, with a little bit of a Bayesian statistical theory and um, some other like uh, magic people and um, real human beings in it. And um, I hope people like the story as much as I like writing it. So 
<laughs> well, we all look forward to it. As a matter of fact, we're going to put links to all of the stuff we mentioned and the writing and the thing coming out and the stories and Chaz's stuff that you can already buy on Amazon on our website, which is www.ridersdrinkingcoffee.com. You can also find us on Facebook or Twitter. We love email. You've been listening to Writers Drinking Coffee, a labor of love and enthusiasm put together by the hosts. Our main web support magic is brought to you by Deirdre Schween, and our sound engineer and backup web spider is David Welsh. Our intro music is Pretty Made Milking a Cow, and our exit music is Breakfast with a Morning Person, both by Michael Inger. You can hear more from Michael Engberg on ManyHatsMusic.com. And hey, thanks for listening. Thank you.